Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Welcome to today's Beeson Podcast. We're coming to you today from Providence, Rhode Island, where I've been a part of the Evangelical Theological Society annual meeting, and I have the great honor of speaking today on the Beeson Podcast to one of the plenary presenters at this meeting. She is Dr. Gwenvire Walters-Adams. She's Associate Professor of Church History at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, not too far from where we're uh, meeting today, uh, a distinguished scholar of late medieval Reformation study, She's a graduate of Wellesley College, of Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, and a Ph.D. from the University of Cambridge. It's a pleasure to welcome you to the Beeson Podcast, Gwenvar. It's a delight to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Now, we know you a little bit because you've been to Beeson. You gave our Reformation Heritage Lecture several years ago. They were a smash hit down there, and you did a wonderful job here. I want you to talk a little bit about your presentation but begin by telling us a little bit about yourself, how you came to faith, your background. Well, first, I just want to say how much I enjoyed being at Beeson. What a wonderful mm. community you Thank have you. there. Well, my background is very much in medieval studies, and so I approached the Reformation as a medievalist. But I also grew up in a household that was very Calvinistic. My father uh, was a professor at Gordon-Conwell. He had done his doctoral work on John Calvin and the Doctrine of Sanctification. Oh, So I grew up very much as part of the Reformed faith. Mm -hmm. And so I approached the medieval world from uh, a Reformation perspective and the Reformation from a medieval perspective. And so I'm fascinated by the transition between the two. I think I first met you in Cambridge when yes. you were a student there. We have a mutual friend, Mark Dever, who Indeed. was also a doctoral student yes. and a former student of mine. So we, we were together, I think, at a Thanksgiving meeting for expats or something like yes, that indeed. Yes. at his home. So yes. you were then Wonderful in the memories. thick of your doctoral work. Uh, uh, tell us what that was focused on. Well, Mark Dever and I had the same supervisor, Eamon Duffy, uh, who's uh, one of the premier medievalists and Reformation scholars. He, again, is interested in that transition. So Mark Dever was working on Puritan studies while I was working on late medieval studies, while Eamon Duffy was writing his book on the stripping of the altars. Mm. And so my work was very much focused on visions and visionaries in late medieval England. Mm. It was fascinating to to see all their different experiences and how they impacted the laity's experiences. You can really look at the visions and their expression as a way of looking at the key dynamics that are at play in late medieval spirituality. Mm -hmm. And the visions really buttress late medieval spirituality as well, because they're a way of the church saying, look, what we're saying is true, because look at these people who had these visions that confirm Mm. it. So Mm. it's very interesting work. Yeah. There's a big uh, discussion about Luther and mysticism in particular. Have you thought much about that? Was He doesn't talk a lot about visions, except he did have some visions. He talks right. about these a little bit. Uh, how does he fit into this? Well, he was interested in some of the mystical writings. I think of the Theologica Germanica mm-hmm. had an impact on him. Uh, in terms of visions in particular, yes, as you mentioned, he had some visions. In, in reference to your own talk, your own plenary mm. address, which was fascinating, you were dealing with Luther and the devil. Mm. And so one of the categories of visions that I had looked at in the Middle Ages was that of those dealing with demons. Mm. 
And there were so many categories of visions that went away with the Reformation because of their being attached to purgatory or mm. the saints or whatever, which changed theologically in the Reformation. But one of the categories that didn't go away were the visions of demons because, mm. of course, the demons are mentioned in Scripture themselves. So yeah. Sola Scriptura did not eliminate those no, visions. that's right. Uh, when you were talking about your background growing up in a Reformed uh, a ba- uh, tradition, I forgot to mention your husband, uh, yes. who, who is a Baptist. Yes. You're a Presbyterian. Yes, so indeed. How do you all get along? <laughs> <laughs> we get along great, but we have wonderful discussions. Yeah. Yes. So, uh, I think that's interesting. Iron sharpens iron. And he's a pastor, right? He is a pastor in Lynn, uh, in Massachusetts, yeah. an inner city church. Wonderful. Now, I, I want you to say a little bit about your plenary address here. It was really a remarkable address. I'll let you characterize it because... What you were doing, uh, I think, surprised people a little bit, how you began by talking about continuity rather than discontinuity with the preceding medieval period. But you, you tell us what you were up to there. Well, what was interesting me was the fact that in recent years, there has been some denigration of the Reformation, I think, in uh, some scholarly writings and on a popular level. And that has been a bit of a concern to me, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. because I think that we have so much to learn from the Reformers. And with my work on the Romans 1-8 to commentary in the RCS, uh, the Reformation Commentary on Scripture series, I've really come to love the Reformers at an even deeper mm-hmm. level and to catch from them their passion for the gospel. And so I was concerned that the Reformation and the Reformers' writings were in danger of not being treated with the kind of respect that I think they're worthy of. And so I was trying to figure out why that was. And part of what came to me was this possibility that we have perhaps focused so much on how the Reformation changed things from the medieval world that we have perhaps put ourselves in danger of thinking that the medieval world was so different from ours that therefore the reformers are maybe even skewed by those differences and that when they come to the gospel, they're merely responding to something very idiosyncratic uh, in their own time period and they really have nothing to say to us. And so I wanted to find out a little bit more about this and, and if, if it was such an idiosyncratic time, does it have something to say to us? And what I was proposing in the talk was that the very idiosyncratic nature of the medieval period happens to coincide with many of the aspects of life that the law in the Old Testament puts into place. Mm. And so there are very distinct parallels between the late medieval period and the Old Testament. And therefore, I argue that the Reformers have something very important to tell us (laughs) because they may be looking at the gospel from a period that was very similar to what God had set up in the Old Testament. Mm. And so they may therefore be able to understand the gospel in a very profound way. And and, and instead of being irrelevant to us, they are highly, highly relevant to yeah. us. I remember one of the points of continuity that you began with, I think, was the sense of transcendence, the yes. utter holiness of God, yes. exemplified even in some of the architecture of the period. Yes, And that's part of what I find another parallel between the late medieval world and the Old Testament law, was that both of them were concretizing these abstract theological concepts that might have been possible to ignore had God not, in the Old Testament, made them concrete through the Holy of Holies and the Mm -hmm. temple and the tabernacle. 
And you see a similar kind of thing happening in the late Middle Ages with the cathedrals, mm. with the space, the sacred space, and the majesty of the, the magnitude of these cathedrals, that it would have been very hard for the medieval person not to take seriously the transcendence of God mm. when they see these cathedrals and worship in the midst of them. Yeah, you mentioned that Calvin's father was an official at the cathedral in Noyon in France. Yes. And this was probably a part of his experience growing up. Yes. And there were five other cathedrals that he had exposure to over the course of his life. And when he's writing the Romans commentary, he's actually in Strasbourg, which has, I think it was the second largest cathedral. It's amazing. I've been there and seen it. And it's ah. still it's awe-inspiring to Is it? Be, go oh, to Strasbourg and see that great cathedral. Now, I love the, the title of your talk. Uh, which again was a, a bit uh, jarring. <laughs> it was shock and awe, the reformers and the stunning joy of Romans 1 to 8. Now you've mentioned the fact that you're interested in Romans 1 to 8 because you're doing the volume, you're the volume editor for Romans 1 to 8 in the Reformation Commentary on Series, uh, Reformation Commentary on Scripture series. Where's this shock and awe come from? <laughs> well, the shock and awe is uh, a reference to the the phrase that emerged in the 1990s in reference to a particular kind of psychological warfare approach that, that was used in literal warfare. Mm. Um, but it, it, it's a metaphor that I think people use for, for really coming on strong against an enemy and, and showing them your might and power so that they're cowed into submission. And there is a little bit of that in the law, the Old Testament law, that God is saying I am holy and powerful, and you are sinners, and you need to be aware of this gap. You know, there's a shock and awe element to that. And the medieval period was doing something similar uh, with the, the sacrament of penance and the purgatorial uh, images that were put up before people, and just this constant reminder that they were sinners in contrast to this powerful, holy God. And so this shock and awe, uh, the reformers grew up with that, and so they would have known how serious their own sins were before this holy God. So this shock and awe then is something that prepares them in the same way that the Old Testament law prepared all of humanity, in a sense, uh, for the reality and the shock, um, but the stunning joy then that comes with the reality that Jesus came and died for us. There's the shock and awe of the terror turns into shock that Jesus would come and die for us while we were yet sinners. And then the awe of a God that would love us so much that he would do that. And then what, what happens in the, in the writings of the Reformers is just this explosive joy. Mm. And I, reading this, um, for the first time when I had put all of it together, I had this wonderful team of translators that were working with me. And we, so I finally took all of the work that we had done and put it all together. And it's about 300,000 words. And I read it for the first time all the way through in order. And it took about four 18-hour days to do it. Wow. And at the end of each day, I would find myself just overwhelmed mm -hmm. with the emotion. I would have to weep, mm -hmm. uh, which was a, a surprise to me. But I, I just couldn't get over what the Reformers couldn't get over, which was the incredible joy of the gospel the whole doctrine of sola fide, yeah. you know, that we take for granted now, I think, but they weren't taking it for granted. They had rediscovered it, but they were rediscovering it in the context of this shock and awe. Um, and so they didn't take it for granted. They just couldn't believe it. 
you know, it's the place where what we call the material and the formal principles of the Reformation come together in a yes. way. Yes. Uh, what you're talking about, the discovery of the joy of the gospel, yeah. sola fide, we're saved, we're justified by faith alone. They found this in the scriptures. Yes. Uh, and so this becomes a kind of nexus, the the word of God in Holy Scripture and the message of the word of God yes. is center in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yes. That's what produces the joy. Yes. And then Sola Scriptura helps them cut out all of this other stuff that has been, kind of been piled on over the centuries. And so now they can see the crystal, crystal clarity of the gospel. Now, I love the fact that you're a Reformation scholar, but also a medievalist and that you're, you're, you're pursuing the the connexus between the two. You, you, yes. see, you see continuity, discontinuity. I think that's a much more holistic way and more mm -hmm. accurate way of describing what really happened because it wasn't all of a sudden that you know there was something out of the blue, that they're building on something that's there, but yeah. then it's transformed by this new revelatory insight into yes. the gospel itself. And you do that beautifully in the Theology of the Reformers in that first chapter. Thank you. Thank you. Now, a lot of your work, uh, Gwenvar, seems to be at the intersection of spirituality and church history. Yes. Uh, these are two uh, separate disciplines in a lot of the curricula of seminaries today. Uh, we all have to give an account to our accrediting body of what we're doing in spiritual formation. Mm -hmm. uh, that's a fairly new thing. When I got started in this field, you know, really only the Catholics, maybe the Orthodox, a few Anglicans were interested in spirituality. Now we all are interested because we have to be. But uh, I wonder if you've thought about that, that intersection of history, in particular theology, and spirituality. What would you say about that? Ah, yes. Uh, this is an area of, of much passion for me. Um, I like to think about C.S. Lewis and his personal experience. When he was growing up, he was reading richly in the classics, in mythology, and in, in Greek and Roman writings and in all the different classics coming up to his time period. And he, he was passionate about reading as a child, so he did it on his own, but he also had uh, this wonderful instructor, kind of a mentor to him when he was a teenager, and then he went to, to uh, Oxford and was reading in the classics and then in English literature. And, and all of this was going into his mind and in his heart. And when it came time then for him to start writing himself, there was so much for his mind to draw on. Mm. And so his writings, I think part of the reason why they're so popular and why people constantly are reading them, and you know, even 50 years after his death, you know, you've got a huge popularity here in the States for them, is the richness. But it didn't come from just his sheer brilliance. Mm. It came from this reservoir that he was mm. drawing on. And so for me, church history does the same thing. I think so often when we're doing spiritual formation today, we're just looking at our own time period. We look to the scriptures, which is, of course, the most important place to look. But if we don't draw on the riches of church history, the, it can be quite thin mm. um, now if we're just drawing on our own experience. But if you go back through the history of the church and you look at all these different models, and there's so many, it's not just the medieval models, but uh, the Reformation models, the revival models, uh, Methodist models, you know, just so many different, and even back to the early church. If you put that all in your mind and your heart, then when it comes to trying to think about how to understand the scriptures and what they say about spiritual formation and how that can be applied now, there's this rich matrix, again, mm -hmm. that you can draw on. And I think it makes for much uh, more layered, textured, much more lively models mm. of spiritual yeah. formation. 
You know, I had a, a great teacher at, at Harvard, uh, George Hunston Williams. And oh, he yes. Used, he used to talk about uh, our speaking cousins. Uh, you know, people that, yes. uh, you know, are kind of on the margins, maybe yes. uh, not in the mainstream. They're, they're not the centerpiece, but right. but they are a part of the tradition, our, our speaking cousins. And we need to know them. We need to yeah. be in conversation with them as we're seeking the face of God, as right. we're seeking to grow in Christ. We yes. have something to learn from them. And I think that's what you're talking about, this intersection yeah. of learning from our speaking cousins uh, yes. throughout the history of the church uh, and then applying that uh, mm-hmm. to the life of faith today. Now, you've, you've kind of come to this, uh, and you're working right now in Romans 1 to 8. Uh, we're really looking forward to having your volume out, by the way, in the Reformation Commentary on Scripture. Uh-huh. This is a 28-volume set of exegetical comment from the 16th century. And, of course, Romans... Uh, is just right at the heart of, of it all. And uh, Luther certainly thought so, didn't he? Indeed, yes, <laughs> yes. But, you know, the Reformers were also interested in prayer and mm-hmm. in um, this turning the heart to God, their, their devotional writings. Mm-hmm. Some of Luther's best devotional work happens in his letters, his correspondence, mm-hmm. yes. where he's dealing with people in their struggles, in their doubts, in their fears. Can you connect kind of the biblical exegetical basis of Reformation theology with this other, we might call it more the spiritual literature of the period? Well, for the Reformers, of course, everything rises from the scriptures. Mm. So they are always beginning there. And Romans, of course, was one of the places where they began. I mean, it began in many ways for Luther with Romans. Uh, His first foray into lecturing at the university was in Psalms, Mm -hmm. and um, there he starts to think Christologically in an Augustinian fashion about the Psalms, and starts to discover the humility of Christ, and it starts to turn him from being terrified through this shock and awe we were talking about earlier, towards falling in love, in a sense, with, with Christ. And that's something that continues over his life. But I think it's in Romans that he really Uh, discovers the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And really, I think there comes fully to his appreciation for what Christ has done and so on. So the the work in the text is where it starts, I think, for the reformers. But they did have rich devotional lives, and they were encouraging those that were following them to develop rich devotional lives Mm -hmm. as well. So Luther, for example, takes his medieval monastic approach to the scriptures and translates it into a kind of modified way of taking the scriptures and turning it into prayer. So Lectio Divina was something that he would have practiced mm-hmm. as, a mon- uh, as a monk, four-step process. He then develops a four-step process that takes someone from scripture all the way through then to turning it into prayer. Mm. So again, it's that, that rooted in the scriptures, but then turning it into one's devotional approach to God. You know, Luther has these three rules on how you read the Bible, how you pray, oratio, which is prayer, meditatio, but then he adds tentatio, temptation, Yes, as something that we don't always always think about when we think about prayer. You know, we get get alone with God, go to your prayer closet or go to church, and but we don't think about temptation as being Mm. very much central to the whole act of Christian devotion. Luther thought that way, didn't he? Yes. It's interesting you mentioned those those three in particular. My colleague, uh, Gordy Isaac, has just uh, published a book this past month on those three. And yeah, when, when you think about tentatio, 
uh, Anfechtungen is mm -hmm. another term sometimes mm -hmm. that is used for that. And this was something that was very prominent for Luther. He was someone who had struggled with depression. Mm -hmm. And that didn't leave him completely after he had mm -hmm. his moment of coming over uh, into sola fide and so on. So he was someone who, who deeply understood what it was to suffer. And he, of course, was living under perpetual uh, threat of being killed mm. uh, because of his beliefs. And, and there was a lot of suffering in, in life in general in the Middle Ages. It was not an easy time period in which to live as a human being. There was a lot of physical suffering that he endured. He had lots of illnesses. And so he saw these Anfechtungen as really uh, shaping him and as being the way that, that God actually made him a theologian. He said mm. that it was not just living, but it was dying yeah. you know, that, that made him a theologian. And he talked about the contrast between the gospel and its joy. Again, we're back to the joy mm. of the gospel. You know, the gospel comes to us and it presents the Christian life as this wonderful thing that we live in Christ and, and that heaven is awaiting us and so on. But, but then in our lives, we have this suffering and this temptation and this agony. And the gap between the two is something that forces us first to grow in our faith because we have to believe in something that we can't see. But it also draws us, or should, uh, or can, um, draw us closer to Christ because only in Christ can we bear these anfektungen. Uh, we need his help. And it should also draw us to other believers as well, mm -hmm. because we can't survive the, these tentatio by ourselves. Um, we need to have believers mm -hmm. with us. Yes. Yes, Luther talks a lot about the consolation that we receive yes. from one another. And I think that's really what his doctrine of the priesthood of all believers is about. It's yes. Not just I'm a lonely priest, yes. but that we are together a priesthood of believers in the community of faith. And yes. we're to care for one another, forgive one another, love one another. Yes. This is a part of the Christian life. And that also then, of course, leads to vocation, the importance of vocation. That's one of the exciting places where you see the paradigm shift happening, mm -hmm. is that vocation used to be a term that would be applied only to the monks and the nuns and the priests. They were the ones that had the callings. But with Luther... And then the other reformers, you start getting the sense of excitement that everybody has a calling. And Luther even talks about changing diapers, you know, <laughs> yeah, right. can have value before God because that's part of your calling as, yeah. a, as a father or as a mother. Yeah. And that everybody's work matters. Yeah. And that it, as long as you're doing it as unto the Lord and you're doing what he is calling you to do, that it has tremendous value. Yeah, so vocation. Wonderful. Shock and Awe, The Reformers, and the Stunning Joy of Romans 1 to 8. That was the title of Dr. Gwynvire Walters Adams' plenary address here at the Evangelical Theological Society in Providence, Rhode Island. She is Associate Professor of Church History at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, a distinguished scholar, author of numerous books, including one that's just coming out, Romans 1 to 8, and the Reformation Commentary on Scripture series from InterVarsity Press. Thank you, Gwen Barr, for this wonderful conversation. Oh, it's been a delight. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition 
of the Beeson Podcast.